Now, if the court doesn't accept that definition of that difference, then it's a very easy thing to write. Did you have left on rebuttal? How much time was left on Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. When I read what significance procedural posture? The court doesn't belong to the judges. It doesn't belong to the lawyers. It doesn't belong to the courthouse crowd. It belongs to the people of this state. Welcome to another episode of Georgia Appellate Review. I am Ryan Locke, and I am here today with Scott Key. Scott Key, of course, I mean, if you don't know who Scott Key is, you may not be listening to the right podcast. Scott Key is at Miller and Key. He is the GACL president. He is the Georgia Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers president. He's the host of the Georgia Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers podcast, an amazing podcast available where all podcasts are sold. And he is a, I would say, a a seminal name in Georgia appeals. Um, Scott. Welcome to the program. That's a lot to live up to, Ryan. I'm going to try my very best. <laughs> oh, and and I almost forgot Scott's blog. Tell me again the name of your blog. Oh, it's uh, it's it's a real catchy marketing uh, kind of title for a blog. I don't know what I was thinking when I created it, but it's uh, Georgia Criminal Appellate Law Blog dot com. I mean, and it it advertises itself correctly because if if you're into Georgia appellate law, you should be reading this blog. Um, well, Scott, thank you. Thank you so much for coming. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm very excited about this. You know, it's it's not often that we uh, appeal lawyers get to talk about appeals in such a deep and nerdy way. Well, I do, but people never listen. Yeah. <laughs> It's it's very self actualizing. I find yes. very nice. Yeah, that's, and that's what we need is more sexual. It's, whoa, self actualization. I don't want to mess that's up your clean tag. Oh, I'm you know I, I worked hard for that. I'm sure you'll get that in post. What I accidentally said there. Well, Scott, tell me um, kind of how we begin every every interview. Tell me how you got into appellate work. Um, when I was a third year law student. I worked as an intern uh, for an attorney who's still practicing, a guy named Lee Sexton. And, you know, our, our joke is that if he hadn't lost so many trials that year, I would never have become an appellate lawyer. Um, when I first uh, became a lawyer, I did a case called Graham versus the state, which was a murder conviction that um, I found an issue and overturned a murder conviction. And I went on this crazy uh, streak my first year as an attorney where I won several appeals back to back to back and didn't know for about a year that it was hard. And so I I got this, I got this false sense of how easy it was. Um, and I just sort of have never looked back from there. Um, it's, it's something that I've learned to love it. Um, you know, I told someone the other day that the best part about being an appellate lawyer is you're not just representing your client. You're representing any future client who may find himself situated similarly to the client that you're representing right now. And uh, that's a cool thing. I mean, you can really uh, change the law through your work in a way that you can't uh, with anything else unless you were to become you know, part of the legislature or something. How, how is your handling of appeals, your, your you know, kind of, philosophy, workflows, that kind of thing. How has it changed from then 
two appeals you're doing now? Well, uh, you know, beyond just uh, being an appellate lawyer, uh, one, one of the things that I enjoy the most and what, one of the transitions I find uh, myself making is I also teach. Um, I'm an adjunct at Mercer Law School where I help uh, run a, um, an indigent post-conviction clinic uh, along with a professor who was there uh, more permanently. But I'm, I, do a, I'm, I just have a running uh, semester-to-semester gig there. I also uh, will from time to time teach Georgia uh, Appellate Practice and Procedure at Mercer Law School. And um, I love working with third-year law students and young lawyers. Uh, I've, I've hired one of my uh, best students out of, out of the Georgia criminal practice, uh, I'm sorry, appellate practice class. And so one transition that I'm making, and what the model that we do in our office now, now that I have an associate who's very good at writing and very interested in appellate law, is we, we have sort of come into the model in our office uh, that I think is is similar to the model that appellate judges use, which is um, you you get a, a good bit of initial drafting done by a clerk or in this case um, my associate, and then um, she'll send me a draft, and then we'll work drafts back and forth either through track changes or um, just making it a PDF and marking it up with a pen, you know with a with an Apple pencil. So there's a it, my uh, my appellate practice has become a lot more collaborative, either in the form of working with an associate or working with law students or um, even teaming up with another lawyer and working back and forth. Um, there have even been some cases where I've been retained to be the appellate lawyer during the trial and my job is sort of to shape the record up. So, um, you know, I was a I was working very much on my own um, without a lot of uh, collaboration when I was a younger lawyer, and now I really enjoy working sort of as part of a team in a collaborative way. Do you find it easy or hard to edit other people's work? I, I always find it like somewhat difficult because I'm kind of trapped in their frame, and so I, I, I have to like it's more difficult for me to hit it at every level where it's like, well, I would structure it this way differently and also write this differently. But then the way you're writing isn't bad. It's just not my way. How do you handle that? Well, um, I like editing. Um, I, I think it's hard. I think if you were with an, you know, an abs- with an absolute peer, you know, if you, if you were working with, a, with an attorney who had been doing appellate law as long as you had, or maybe, maybe a lawyer with more experience, I think, I think it can be more difficult. I think with someone who's brand new or who's a student, um, it can be a little bit easier. Um, editing is something that I enjoy maybe as much as writing. Um, it, it, I think, I think one of the keys to editing is good communication. Um, you know, even beyond the appellate world, um, you know, most of the great authors of the 20th century, um, you know, worked with editors. Um, I, I, the name the name escapes me, but I know that Ernest Hemingway um, had an editor that he used uh, throughout his whole career, and they were they were pretty close. So, um, you know, editing is, is its own thing, and it's something that I've come to enjoy. Uh, but I think it's a thing that definitely works with with folks who are maybe junior to you. Um, a, a lot of lawyers who might who might be kind of have been out as long as you have or have been out longer than you have, it, it may be a little bit of a difficult uh, transition to make. But editing is something I've come to enjoy. And what I, what I learned 
uh, with the associate I'm working with is, you know, we've, we've done a few projects together and the most recent one she did, she kind of had, she sort of has learned to write in my voice. Um, Mm -hmm. and my style is very, um, I try to be very uh, conversational. I mean, not informal, but conversational in the way I write. Um, my, my goal when I write an appellate brief is I should be able to hand it to um, a scholarly, um, you know, the most scholarly justice that you could imagine, and the justice would appreciate it. But I should be able to hand it off to an educated non-lawyer. And that educated non-lawyer should be able to also understand what my argument is and appreciate it as well. You know, and, and that's so hard to hit bold. Who was it? Whereas if I had more time, I would have made this letter shorter. Yes, I think, like that, I think that's F. Scott Fitzgerald, but I'm, but I'm not 100%. But yes, absolutely. The, I mean, distilling those, I mean, distilling kind of the complex topics down into simple stuff, but also finding out. Like for, for me, one of the, I mean, it just takes so much time talking with other people and figuring out what your, you, what your case is actually about. Absolutely. And, and, and it's so seldom that the case is about what you think it's about. And sometimes it takes just bouncing the ideas off of people and, 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 and ideally non-lawyers. Um, if you can run the facts and run the law by someone who's not a lawyer, sometimes you'll learn that the case isn't what you thought it was. Um, and, and we, I do, I do some jury work still. And, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting. Every time I've ever talked to a jury after a trial, um, I find out that they made the decision on something I didn't anticipate that they would make the decision on. And, you know, you'll learn that at oral arguments sometimes that, um, what the, what the court is interested in is not what you thought was the central question of the case. And now ideally you would learn that in advance and I think talking to people, I mean, really talking out your case with, with people is the key to trying to figure out what it's about. Most cases are about one thing and learning what that one thing is, is so important. But if you find out like at an argument that it's about something you didn't think it was about, to be able to adjust and, and accommodate that is very important. What was the last like risk that you took in, in drafting a brief or an oral argument, something where you thought, you know, this is the, I'm stretching myself in doing this. Um, you know, I would say the biggest example of that was a case that I did a few years ago. Um, it was, um, it was kind of a famous case. Um, it, it was, it was, you know, it was very well covered nationally when it was tried. And then I was the lead counsel on the appeal. And that was a case called uh, Hemi Newman versus the state of Georgia. Uh, that was you know, also known as the Dunwoody daycare shooting. And, you know, we made, and that, that's a case where I was involved behind the scenes as the appellate lawyer, shaping up motions and, um, you know, proposed orders with the, with the idea of the appeal in mind. And one of the, it, it was a kind of an interesting set of facts because after the main witness against us at trial was uh, the the widow of the victim of the alleged crime. And she was then subsequently between when our client was convicted and when our appeal uh, unfolded, she was tried for perjury for lying in our case. And, you know, 
the news media, everybody's central focus as that appeal sort of made its way through the motion for new trial phase up on appeal was this idea of perjury that, you know, the, a, a, the main witness against us had been convicted of perjury during our trial. And, you know, the motion, the motion for a new trial, we made the decision to, to really emphasize the perjury at the motions phase of that trial because we knew that it would be extensively covered by the media. Uh, we knew that, um, you know, there were cameras all over the courtroom. And so the, 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 the thing that we thought would hit the public in the gut was this idea of perjury. I, I don't, I mean, I think it was a, it was an arguable issue. I think it was a meritorious issue, but I don't think it ultimately was the winning issue. But, but I decided to go heavy on perjury at the motion for new trial because I thought that would build public sentiment. Um, then we made, and then we even led in the briefs with perjury. But when I got to oral argument, I didn't talk about perjury at all, and I didn't intend to talk about perjury at all. And I knew that when we were at the, at the motions phase, that was not going to be what the case was going to turn up. And so when I got to the oral argument at the Supreme Court, there was this attorney-client privilege issue and doctor-patient privilege issue that I thought was a better appellate issue. And when I came in to the argument, that is what I led with. I don't know that I used the word perjury at the oral argument. So, you know, I, I made the decision for, um, I made the, the decision for press, I'm not necessarily press purposes, but I made the decision at the motions phase to emphasize a more visceral issue, um, knowing that probably the motion for new trial wasn't going to be granted and then made the, made the decision early on before the oral argument that I was going to then pivot over to this legal issue. And I think it, I mean, it, it obviously worked, but I think it was a risky way to go potentially. Well, it's so interesting because that's such a, you know, almost trial lawyer consideration. Absolutely. Where, you know, like we don't often think about the appellate bench like a jury, but, you know, I'm, I mean, they're, they're all just, you know, sophisticated people and, Right. You know, I guess they're still right. open to this kind of. Oh, yeah. You know, they're not, you know, and they'll, if, if you listen to appellate judges talk, or justices talk at CLEs, you know, that they, you, you would think that they were these, um, you know, turbocharged uh, judicial computers that you feed the law to and they, they, they produce the right result. And, and they're, you know, they're kind of a jury too. They were very educated you know, very learned jury, but, um, they're people too. And that's why, you know, that's why briefs have statements of facts because I, I always tell people when I speak at sillies or, you know, when they're asking me what wins appellate cases, um, I, I always say that the statement of facts is where you make your bench want you to win. And the argument and citation of authorities is where you give them away. Hmm. That, and, and when Andrew Fleischman was on, he said the same thing. He said that the, the fact section is the most important the, because that's what garners sympathy for your client. The most important. I think you win or you lose your case in the statement of facts. And judges won't tell you that, um, but, I, but they're humans too. You know, they're, they're, they're subject to the same emotions and, you know, sense of unfairness or fairness uh, that, that we are. And, 
you know, I think you're going to, I think the cases turn on the statement of facts and how you craft that statement of facts. Um, because the law, the law can go either way. Most, you know, in a good case or a close case, the law is going to go either way. We've all had the experience where we've walked into a courtroom and we, you know, we thought that the, that the case law was on our side and, you know, that we just had it. Or we thought that the case law was terrible and we were absolutely going to lose. And we've been surprised that it's gone the other way. And, um, and, and, and then it's, you would, you would have thought there's been many times where I would have thought this would, this is going to be an absolute reversal because the law is what it is. And the law matters way less than the, I mean, the law matters way less than the facts. When do you write the, the facts section before you, the first last? That's always first. That's always the first thing you write. Um, because I, that, and I probably spend the most time in the facts section. Um, and, and I'll tell you, you know, part of, part of what I do is when I get the transcript, um, I will take that transcript and I will prepare a digest of it. So if I have a, you know, a 4,000 page transcript, I may, you know, I'll, I will reduce that down to about a 300 page digest that I can write from. And because I just want to learn those facts inside and out, I, I want to learn what they are, where they are, um, how I can, how I can tell the story. Um, so that's, that's what I, you know, when I go to write, that's what I write first. When I start mastering the case, that's what I try to master first. Do you, do you moot your cases? Yes. Um, I, I won't say that I moot every case. Um, but every every major case I've done in the in the past five years I have mooted, um, and I I am just about a hundred percent sure that I will never do another argument without meeting it first. Mm-hmm. It, um, it it's, it's a it is a night and day. I mean, like it is literally a night and day difference between the cases I've mooted and the ones I haven't. And and tell me how you how you arrange it, how you get people to, um, to, <laughs> how you get people to show up, but also to be, you know, to kind of be ready to moot you in your cases, you know, and not just be like glancing through the brief as they sit down in your office. Well, so here, here's kind of what I do. And, um, first of all, I'm available. I mean, it, literally anyone listening, um, I make myself available to moot anybody that needs help mooting because I think mooting is fun. Um, and, and like, I don't, and I'll just, I'll, I'll, this is a confession that I may lose some street cred among, uh, <laughs> Georgia association of criminal defense lawyers, like diehard true believer, uh, defense attorneys, but I moved prosecutors. Um, I have, I have mooted several prosecutors to help them prep for their oral arguments. Um, you know, I, I make myself available literally to anybody that, um, that wants help moving a case because I think it's extremely fun. And I mean, I think it's, um, I try to bench, um, practices for law school, new courts, or, you know, preside when I can, when I, whenever I'm invited, I, I just think that process is really valuable. Um, so I make myself available to move. And then I have a core group of people that I know that I can, I can call them, um, who will help me, um, who will, who will, you know, really read the briefs, and spend some time working it up. So, you know, I, I have a pretty deep bench of friends that I can call and they'll be available. Um, 
and 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 I've always found just a a level of preparation. Um, then I will try to then I will try to locate a courtroom I can use. Um, law school moot courtrooms are often available. Uh, the state bar. I mean, this is. I'm almost afraid to say this because I'm worried that people will start <laughs> start using it. But the state bar of Georgia has this wonderful moot courtroom that I have never seen used except for when I've been in there. And you can call up a few days in advance and book that new courtroom, and they will let you use it for several hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, you know, I show up and like I stay in character, uh, you know, a brainstorming session um, or a, I guess, a working or a planning session is different from a moot court. A moot court is what it is. Um, it, I look at it as the dress rehearsal. You know, I, I have never thought about asking prosecutors to move me. Uh, no, but that's you don't want to, Yeah, you don't want to be in an echo chamber. Like prosecutors or civil, you know, if you're doing a criminal case, they're calling civil lawyers. Um, prosecutors um, are great. You know, you, you want that perspective. And so I've had prosecutors move me. I've moved prosecutors. And, you know, it, it's just a professional way to be. Um, and I think that, I think it shows a sense of camaraderie and, you know, it's a rare prosecutor that I don't really get along with at, at some, you know, personal level or some professional level. And prosecutors are a valuable uh, resource for moving you. Now, I, I thought we would do something a little bit different and, and talk about your last oral argument. Okay. And, and this was, if that's all right, it, it, it's Georgia Department of Human Services, Division of Family and Children Services. Versus Christopher Steiner. Okay. And and it was just a few weeks ago, right? It seems like it was yesterday. Yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sure. It's it's in, until the opinion comes down. It's in your shooting around in your mind. Oh yes, absolutely. Uh, tell me, um, give me a little bit uh, a background, just kind of the the basic issues in the case, and then we'll we'll play some clips and we'll talk about it. So Georgia. Uh, a few years ago, created a child abuse registry. This is distinct from the sex offender registry. The child abuse registry is a is its own thing. And uh, what it was designed for was to keep accurate statistics on substantiated instances of child abuse, and also to create a central database that law enforcement, district attorneys' offices. Um, child care agencies, agencies that license child care agencies. A a set of agencies and licensing divisions could use to basically run a background check for um, people who have had substantiated instances of child abuse. Um, The the statute, I mean, so that's the aim is tracking uh, tracking people. The the way they implemented it, however – there's no hearing before you're placed on this list. You receive a notice in the mail that says that you're on the registry. You then have 10 days to initiate an appeal. And then you get an appeal before an administrative law judge. You, the administrative hearing is closed to the public. The record is sealed. Um, you then, um, there's some, there's some crazy notice issues then if you are unsuccessful in your administrative law hearing, you can then go and initiate a judicial review in the superior court where the 
ALJ hearing took place. And then from there, there's a, there's a discretionary appeal process up to the appellate courts. And so this was a this was a, a, a challenge to the constitutionality of that statute. Right. So I um, I got in early. Um, I, I knew that no one had gotten one of these to the courthouse. To the, you know, I was I thought I was going to win the race to the Supreme Court. Um, I got in. I um, I uh, filed a set of constitutional challenges. Um, was ruled against by the ALJ. And then uh, the, the Superior Court ruled in our favor that the statute was unconstitutional. And then DHS appealed uh, to the Supreme Court of Georgia. And let's play. This is the um, your introduction and, and your first question at, at oral argument. I'll first discuss the liberty interest and why it exists, and then I'll move to the registry's unconstitutionality. But before I do that, I want to point out the salient moments that brought us to this point. Mr. Steiner received this notice in the mail. This notice told him that he'd already been found to be a registered child abuser. Can you put the whole notice on? Why are you putting that? This is, this is out of the order that you suggested, but as long as you've introduced the notice, let's say that we conclude that <coughs> that notice was not sufficient as to Mr. Steiner. That doesn't mean that the statute is unconstitutional, does it? So, so you start with saying, hey, th this is kind of the roadmap to my argument. And then you put the notice on the document camera. And then immediately Justice Grant jumps in and says, okay, well, I actually want to talk about, I don't want to follow your roadmap. How do you prepare for that kind of thing? You need to know your case inside and out because, you know, what you want to talk about is not the most important thing. What they want to talk about is the most important thing. And so um, you just you just better be ready um, because they don't have to follow your roadmap. We can, they, they can uh, divert you off of some other road and you just got to be ready. Had, had you um, I mean, do you prepare for that in your in your moots or in your organization where you say, let me like, let's jump in at different points so that I can kind of have that feeling. I, I tell the people who are going to moot me, I want you to be hardcore. I want you to be aggressive with me. I want you to try to throw me off. Um, I want you to uh, talk about something out of left field. Yeah. I, when I prepare a moot, I tell, I tell the mooters to please, um, Please try to disrupt me as much as you possibly can. Do you when when you're up there? Do you take notes? Um, oh, do I take notes to the lectern with me? Yeah. Yes, I take, but very, very. Um, basically, they're down to a single page, and 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 I'll, and I'll have something that I could reference if I have to flip to something. But generally, you know, if if the argument's going well, I, I'm not looking down at any of that stuff. And, and, and I, I didn't have the opportunity to look at anything in that argument. I, I find that, I mean, it's a difficult thing where, yeah, you know, any oral argument, emotions, hearing, whatever, when you have all that stuff in front of you, and then they say, ah, oh, well, let's talk about point three first. And then, you know, in, in your head, you're like, oh, shoot, point three. Oh, so you're fumbling around with papers to get to point three. You're kind of like, oh, this is out of order, so I need to pay close attention to my out. And then it ends up, you know, I'll barely use it at all. Well, you know, it's even, it, it, it was even worse in that argument because as I, as I view the case, um, you know, and, and, and if you listen to the, to DHS's argument, uh, Sarah Warren, uh, who's the solicitor general of Georgia, um, 
handle that argument. And she did just a fantastic job. I mean, she is a fantastic appellate lawyer. Um, you know, she was, I think she reserved two or three minutes. I can't, I mean, I think they, they took her yeah. out a little bit longer than she anticipated going. So she was left with substantially less time for a rebuttal than she wanted. Um, but I would say that her, her, her lead, her main argument, her, you know, her argument in chief, she spent, uh, we, we really have two issues in this case. Um, one is we have to establish a liberty interest such that we even have due process. And then once we get past that, um, you know, we then have to establish the unconstitutionality of the statute, both either as applied or facially. And so uh, the SG spent about 95% of her lead argument talking about how we didn't have a liberty interest. Um, and so as I prepped for oral, oral argument, I thought that the, you know, I thought that's where the question was going to turn on, is there a liberty interest? And so I had, you know, I had prepared basically what I envisioned my argument would be when I stood up would be the counterpoint to their argument, which was she was saying there wasn't a liberty interest. I thought I was going to spend about 90 percent of my time saying that there was. And what I learned about, well, I don't know how many seconds it was before Justice Grant asked me that first question. But what I learned by that first question is they didn't want to hear from me on that. They wanted to hear from me on this other thing. So. You know, they flip flop my argument, and then we spent my and my argument talking about the part that I didn't think was going to be an emphasis for me. This is let me find my answer to her question. By the way, her question to me was, "Well, look, if, if your notice is bad, why do we even have to reach the facial constitutionality of the statute?" And, my, I think I recall my answer being because the statute allows a notice to be this bad. And if you just if you just overturn us because this particular notice was bad, I don't think you're stopping future notices that are insufficient from, you know, working their way up to the court. Right. And, and then I think there were Justice Namias had a line of questioning where it was almost a race to the bottom where it was like, hey, look, you know, in a criminal case where you get the zenith of protections, you they don't owe you anything either. So why in, in this case, which is not a criminal case, should they owe you any more? Yeah, that's right. That was the line of questioning that, that, that I got from him. And and um, this is this is a comment from the bench that it got a laugh and I want to talk about it. And, and I think it goes to your point uh, a moment ago. I wouldn't read too much into questions at oral argument. Well, I will. <laughs> so, so Justice Nami has, you know, had this whole point and then say, oh, well, I wouldn't read too much into it. Well, no, that's not Namius. That's not Namius talking. Okay. That is, um, that is uh, Justice Peterson talking there. Got it. Do you? I mean, do you adjust, you know, particular to your to what your reception is from the bench in terms of you think? All right, I've got these judges with judges or justices with me, and these aren't, and I, I want to, you know, kind of. Uh, uh, you know, kind of pit them against each other, each other or kind of focus on this stuff because I know now that this is the dispute they're going to be having when they decide the case. I think you have to read your room. I think you have to, I think you have to really listen um, during oral argument. And, you know, it, I'm, I'm a criminal defense attorney, so I mainly do criminal appeals. Being the appellee is a, is a whole different experience. And, and in a way, being the appellee is hard. I think it's harder um, in terms of just, you know, you when you're the appellant, you 
you're kind of shaping and framing the case when you're the appellee. You know, being the appellee, and, and, and in some senses being the appellant as you as you watch the questions unfold, uh, particularly as you prepare for a potential rebuttal, um, you really have to read the room. You have to see what they're asking. You have to pay attention. You know, a, a, a good tactic um, when you're the appellee is to go back and say, you know, Justice so-and-so, you asked this question, and I don't think it was answered. Let me tell you the answer to that question. So I, I think there's a there's real value in reading the questions, trying to figure out why the questions are. Um, also, to then you know to, to play one question off against another. Um, uh, you know, of course, Justice Peterson there is saying, "Hey, don't 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 hear me to be saying that this is what I think." Um, right. You know, I, don't you know? Don't uh, don't assume I I think something based upon the question, but. You know, but I, but I think it's fair. I think it's fair to look. Let me go back to the point you made earlier. I think that's a perfectly fair thing to do. Um, another, and, and, mm-hmm. go ahead. I was just saying, even if it's not, even if it's not their opinion, if they're asking about it, you know, it's an important issue in the case. Absolutely, absolutely. Here, let me play. This was, um, this was so one of the one of the kind of one of the the question threads in the case was, um, I, I think an argument by the solicitor general was well. Once you get to this hearing, you don't need any discovery because you get cross-examination. And so you can confront people, the, the witnesses at the hearing, and kind of figure out what you're being accused of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because in the notice, they don't have to provide a lot of particularity about the, the exact instance of child abuse. They can just say, around this time, you were, uh, you know, we think you did, you committed child abuse by being neglectful to a child, and that's it. Right, right. And and here's a here's a line that you had in response to that. When we argue that we don't have sufficient notice, uh, we're told that we can find out what the case is as we cross-examine witnesses. Cross-examination and confrontation is an advocacy tool. It is not a discovery tool. Did, did you come up with that on the spot, or is that something that you had developed? Um, I had developed that. I, I had anticipated that argument. Um, you know, it's it's what they it's what they argued in their brief. But yes, I. I, I I, I would love to. I would love to say I'm that brilliant, um, but uh, but no, I, I had that line ready to go. I mean, do you think it's important to have those kind of? Um, I mean, I, I guess you could almost call it like a, a theme to an argument. Oh, absolutely. You know, it, it is as important to have a theme or to you know you want your argument to be memorable. You 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 would ideally um, you, you know, and it's funny. I, I went back and we, we debriefed this in my class, um, at Mercer because I had my students come up for the, for the, um, argument and, you know, that, that line resonated, um, you know, that they turned in journals based upon, you know, their observations of the court and, you know, the line, you know, that's, that's a line that I kept hearing back to me from my students, you know, that, um, cross-examination is an advocacy tool, not a discovery tool. I mean, you can you can almost imagine that line appearing as as the topic sentence in an opinion. Well, you know, if it goes your way, I sure hope it does. <laughs> I would love to see that as a topic sentence in the opinion. Uh, but you know, it, and it is a point. Um, I, I think it's all. I think it's almost offensive the argument that you don't need to know what you did. Uh, you don't need to know what we said you did when we told you that you were a child abuser. Um, you can show up and you can just sort of ask and learn. And, a, you know, a deposition is not the same as a cross-examination. Um, 
you, you, you know, you, you what, what's the, you know, the oldest line in law school is never ask a question on cross. You don't, you don't know the answer to. And here we have this system set up where no, you actually are going to cross and learn the answer um, as you go. Now the, the solicitor general, Sarah Hawkins Warren, um, I thought, and, and we're also, I guess I probably should mention this at the beginning. We're gonna. We're also when we post this episode, we're gonna post the entirety of the oral argument so people can listen because I think it's it's just an excellent oral argument from beginning to end on both sides. It certainly sounds better as you play these clips, and I remember. I'm the same way. I I walk out of there like I walk out and I'm like, oh, well, I just lost that case. Like I oh that was oh, terrible. Look, oh, you love this. I looked at my associate in the hallway and I said. Am I ever going to be able to practice law again in this court? <laughs> so <laughs> it, it was, it was, yeah. So it, you know, it, I sound, I mean, I, I am shocked as you play these clips, how calm I sound because I didn't, I didn't feel like I was coming across that calm during that argument. Mm-hmm. No, I'm, I remember the, the first oral argument I had in the Supreme court, some, um, some other, I share space with other lawyers and, and they were watching it live on TV back at the office. And so then I, I was the last one of the day. And so then I was like, oh, like, like, I really messed that one up. Like, you know, 90% of my preparation was useless. Um, yeah, I, I had my, my wife came to watch and I had her take some pictures of me in the courtroom after I went and cleared out. I was like, this is the last time I'm going to be here. So I better make it worth it. <laughs> and, then, and then I'm looking on my phone and everyone's texting like, oh, great job. You looked good. So, you know, and I'm like, who like. It is so hard to it, it is so hard in the moment to feel good about what you're doing, I feel. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you you hold yourself to a high standard, you you prepare, you prepare it to death, you you know that so much is riding on what you do. Um, and you know that, you know, appellate law is a high stakes game. I mean, it's very it's very important and we care about it. And so, you know, I when you walk out, it's like you, I think it's an athletic event as much as anything else. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, adrenaline and all those things, I mean, it took, it took the, the end of the day for me to really have much of a memory of what even happened during those 20 minutes. Do, do you prepare yourself psychologically? Like, you know how athletes will, you know, do so much psychological preparation to focus in on, you know, to be able to perform well when, when 0.3 seconds is the difference between, you know, gold and not placing. Have you deep done re- deep, deep breathing? Um, I um, I typically will not sit in the attorney's lounge or the courtroom. Well, I'm, I'm more likely to sit in the courtroom if I'm you know not the first case up than I will be to sit in the attorney's lounge. I don't like to get into a conversation with people. Um, I will typically go. You know, this is kind of funny. I did this in Newman. I did this before this argument down the other end of the hallway. So for those that don't know, um, the Court of Appeals courtroom and the Supreme Court courtroom in Georgia are on the same floor. And it's rare that they're both in session at the exact same time. I found, I could, I could be wrong about that. It could be just anecdotal on my part. But um, I tend to walk down to the other side of the hallway, past the Court of Appeals courtroom. There's a little side hallway. And I'll just go hang out there for a few minutes where it's really quiet. Um, and just kind of calm down. Um, I think being calm is really important uh, for this. 
So, yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think you know, visualization, deep breathing. Um, I don't like to engage in a lot of talk um, before an argument. Um, you know, focus is so important. Um, you turn that telephone off so that, so that you know, the last thing you want to look at is some angry email or a text from a client or some other, you know, fire pop up while you're trying to prepare for this. You know, you, you, this is the center of everything that morning or that afternoon when you're there. So yeah, I think, I think just getting focused, whatever it is that helps you get focused, um, you need to do that and sort of have a ritual for it. Now, Scott, you know what that sound means. Or maybe, that, that was thunder. That was thunder, was it not? Yeah. <laughs> that means it's time for everyone's favorite portion of the podcast, the lightning round, where oh, gosh. I ask you your opinion on certain appellate topics, and then you give it, and then it's either right or wrong, and I'll tell you. Ah, okay. All right. I'm, I'm now, I'm, now I'm nervous. Now I'm, now I'm back in the whole argument. <laughs> you're sitting up straight in your chair. You're... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Okay. Let's do it. All right. So the first topic is the parenthetical cleaned up. Are you for it or against it? The parenthetical cleaned up. What do you mean? The it, it's been it's been a hot topic on appellate Twitter where if you have internal quotations and um, you know you're you're capitalizing and other stuff. If you're doing a lot of work on your quote and it looks terrible, you know it's like a quote with ah. quote with braces on it that you just get rid of all that and then you put a parenthetical at the end that says cleaned up. No, I, no, I, I'm not down with that at all. Um, I, I think that um, you can get accused of um, mis- you, you can be accused of um, mischaracterizing things. I, I like the ellipses and the, and the brackets. I, I would rather be accurate with the opinion so that when you're reading it, you can see what I've changed mm-hmm. versus me saying cleaned up because what is what is cleaned up me? I, I'm, I'm not down with that at all. The, all right, your next one. This this is a softball. The Oxford comma. Oh man, I am pro Oxford comma. Like nobody's business. I, I kind of want to find someone who is not pro Oxford comma and just hear what they hear hear their argument because I I don't know anyone who is not pro Oxford. I mean, I even love the Vampire Weekend song and listen to it regularly. <laughs> That's how much I love the Oxford comma. All right, your next issue fonts. Do you use a fancy font? Uh, um, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of um, typography for lawyers. Like I just, I just look at that book probably three times a week just because I love it so much. Um, I've not gone to the point where I have purchased, um, where I purchased fonts of my own. Um, I hate Times New Roman. Um, you know, if I'm going to go, if, 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 if I can use a font, um, if if I had my preference, I love Century Schoolbook. Um, I, I'm okay with Baskerville. Um, Garamond is great, but I, I'm a big Century Schoolbook guy because that's the U.S. Supreme Court brief. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the the U.S. Supreme Court sort of approved font, so Century Schoolbook is a is a great font. But I've not gone to the point of purchasing fonts or anything like that yet. And so I'm I'm going to reveal my my true nerdiness. I have purchased fonts. And I, I, oh wow! And I bought I bought Concourse and Equity from Matthew Butterick, the typography for lawyers. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, Equity is his. Like he created that font, didn't he? Equity is the serif one, and then Concourse is the kind of thin sans serif, almost modern 
looking. Um, and you use that, you use that for headings and then you use the Seraphine one for the body. I actually, so originally I was doing a mix and then, uh-huh. but then it was kind of like, it looks like I'm trying, you know, like, <laughs> like yeah. that. so I, I kind of want, like, I want it to look nice, but not for them to be like, Ooh, look at, you know, look at the thickness of this paper and the fonts and the, so um, yeah, it's, it's, it's weird how analogous some, when you get into the finer points of advocacy, how much it is like dating. Mm-hmm. Okay. You don't, you're trying too hard. So yeah, I do. I use just kind of concourse <laughs> everything and, and no one's ever yelled at me for it. So I'm I, like, I'm waiting for a brief to get kicked back to say, put this in times new Roman. Um, but who would dare do such a thing? Yeah, you know, I mean, well, they know they'd be put on blast on this podcast, and then they would. <laughs> oh, for sure. <laughs> you know, I started. I started a big debate, and, and I'm, I'm, we're coming at a lightning round now a little bit. But I started a big debate on Twitter a few weeks ago um, because someone, someone uh, that was editing some writing of mine, uh, a non-lawyer, uh, kicked something back to me and said I shouldn't begin sentences with contractions. Oh, I do that all the time. And I uh, and I put it up on the public Twitter um, about uh, about this, and uh, you know this was my this was my um, this was my moment of like this is the biggest brush with fame ever is that Brian Garner tweeted back to me and said that it's perfectly okay to to begin sentences with contractions, and it it felt like that um, it felt like that moment in Annie Hall where Woody Allen is standing in line and he's um, debating about what some um, uh, what some critic had said and Woody Allen said, you know, you've got this guy wrong. And then the critic just happens to walk up and says, you know, nothing of my work. Um, I felt like it was like that moment for Manny Hall when Brian Garner tweeted back and said, no, you can totally be getting sentences for contractions. I, I would probably print that tweet out and frame it. If it was, uh, it, it was, a, it was a, it, it was a big moment in my life. I mean, behind like the birth of my child kind of big moment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I mean, the problem with the birth of your child is the birth of your child doesn't vindicate your grammatical use. So Correct. it's a tough, yeah, yeah. It's, it's probably a little bit of apples and oranges, and, and <laughs> it's a good thing my wife will. It's a good thing my wife or my children will never listen to this, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, it's good that many people will never listen to this. That's <laughs> every time. Every time I hit publish on a blog post, that's my one. That's my one consolation. <laughs> The, people come up and said, "Hey, people come up to me like I really like that blog post." I'm like, "Oh, so you're the reader? You're that right, guy? Yeah. <laughs> you like you like cross off your list? You're like from five to four? Like I just have to find the four other people and then I'm I'm dialed in. <laughs> there we go. Right, your your next lightning on issue. Uh, do you hyperlink stuff in your brief? No, but I really want to start doing that. Like I'm all for it, but I've just not done it yet. And, you, know, I I tried the. Like I think Fastcase has a a service where they will like search your brief and replace it with hyperlinks, and it, it worked okay, but not great. It was like the kind of thing where I did it, and I was like, "Oh, it'll pop out a perfect brief," and it was like, "Oh, it'll pop out a brief that will require forty five minutes for me to like fix." And and I don't and I don't know. Now the trouble is, you have to know your panel well. If it's if it's all like young people on your panel then I would say that's a thing because they're probably reading it like on a tablet or a laptop and it's they're probably never printing it. But, um, you know, if you have an older, you know, if you have a justice or a judge on your panel that you know, like they're printing it out or having an assistant print it out, 
then it's just going to be a brief with some ugly formatted text in it. So that that's the real challenge there. Yeah. No, if you get like if you get Judge Dillard's panel, then you're like hyperlinking literally everything. And oh, you you could embed a video or something, and it would be just fine. <laughs> Do you know? I've wondered. Do you have you ever hyperlinked? To, well, hyperlinking to stuff like citations. What I really want to know to the to the five listeners. So you can hyperlink <laughs> to the record. I want to know. You can. I, you can do that. I want to know how to hyperlink to the record and then to a specific page in the record. If you can do that. Yeah, I'm, you know that's my next frontier, and I've just not I've not gone there yet. I would. Oh, I mean, I think it would be so valuable. Right. I, and I think this sort of thing is really good in trial court briefs, probably a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with the trial court, their staff attorney can call you and go, "Hey, this this these hyperlinks aren't working. Can you fix this?" You know, the 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 appellate judges or justices are, are there's a little bit of a layer of separation between you and them. Uh, it's, it's more fixed than the trial. But I think the trial, I think the place to probably learn to do this and, and experiment with, with it would be at the trial court level, uh, particularly with the judge that you know you get along with very well. Yeah. Do, do you put, this is the next lightning round topic that I kind of posted this. Do you put other stuff in your briefs? Like, would you put a screenshot or, or make a timeline or put a table in? Absolutely. In fact, the brief in Steiner has a table in it. Oh, I'm um, excited. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, I definitely, I take yeah tables. If 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 you're talking about a photo lineup, you need that lineup in there. Yeah, I, I'm, and, and particularly I'm I'm real big on this in the federal system, the sentencing memos. Mm. I love to put photographs and tables and things like that. Um, it, it no, I'm I'm all for that stuff. Do do you always ask for oral argument? I don't always ask for oral argument. Um, I have a domestic case where I'm the appellee, and I rarely, I rarely get into a domestic case. But I have a domestic case where I'm the appellee, and I don't think it's when you when you request oral argument, you're telegraphing to the court. I think this is a close case that merits even more of your attention. And if you think it's an easy case, you don't want to request oral argument. Um, so no, I, I don't have a blanket rule for requesting oral argument. There, there generally has to be a reason uh, why I want oral argument. Because the thing about it is, you if you're ahead, if you feel like you're in a good place, um, you know you are creating an opportunity where you can snap a feet from the jaws of victory. Right. Do you in in your brief? Do you put tables of contents, table of authorities, that kind of thing? You know, I never did. Until I hired uh, this associate who was, you know, just the, this brilliant moot court person. Mm-hmm. And since I started drafting with her, um, we've been doing it and I'll never go back. I'll never go back to the old way. Really? I think it, Tell me the benefit. I think it looks, I think it looks professional. Um, I think it gives, well, first of all, a table of contents with headings and subheadings, a table of contents is an advocacy tool. I mean, it, you know, if, if you structure your headings right and then you put those in a table of contents, um, that can be a little powerful one-page um, read of why you should win. So I think a table of contents is an advocacy tool. And I think giving, you know, the court a handy place to go to find all your case sites without having to dig through the body is really important. And I think it just looks professional. Uh, you know, the... the um, 
the appellant, the HS, in the Steiner case did it. And so um, and it, I thought it looked really powerful. Um, so, yeah, I'll, I'll never go back to the old way. When So when you're raising issues, what is your – this question used to be every issue or only winning issues. But really it's turned into kind of what is your threshold of where the amount of issues you're comfortable raising? Man, I, I will tell you, and, and this this is a topic that gets me crossways with my clients all the time. Um, I think it's a rare, a very rare case that's about two things. Mm-hmm. Um, I think cases are about. I think cases tend to be about one thing. Um, you know, unless, unless you have a trial judge who is just really out to lunch, um, you know, you're not going to have seven issues or. You know, I, I start to feel uncomfortable when we get beyond three. Yeah. Uh, and in the best of all worlds, there's one thing that it's about. Um, if you are, you know, the old, I forget what the old adage is from uh, the Jones mm-hmm. v. Barnes case from the Supreme Court that Justice Jackson wrote. But, um, you know, the, the, there's an art of advocacy in choosing the issues and framing the issues. And, you know, clients would, clients would, would like you to raise 50 if you could. Um, and I would raise, and, and, and in the best of worlds, you know, you're going to raise one because if you, if you argue everything, you argue nothing. Right. So, um, you know, it, I, I think cases are generally about one thing that, that takes, I think such, such skill and, and also courage to be like, you know, we're riding or dying on this one issue. That, and that's the way I like to roll. I mean, I, I think, you know, I think that is, you know, this is what, this is what it's about. This, this case, if, if someone says, Hey Scott, what's your case about? Or Hey Ryan, what's your case about? You're probably going to say like the, the thing that you, the thing that you say in answer to that question is what your case is about. Right. And, and, and if you even try to tell, like if you're on the elevator or, you know, you're waiting, you're waiting around in a courtroom and someone's asking you about your case and they say, Hey Ryan, what's it about? If, if you if you start to go to a second or a third issue, watch their eyes glaze over. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I think it's the same thing with your brief, and I think it's the same thing with an oral argument. Um, you know, we had a second issue in Steiner, which was a sufficiency issue that we, I mean, no one ever talked about. Huh. I, pr- mm-hmm. I, sh- I should have read the brief before I listened to the argument. I didn't realize that at all. Yeah, there's a sufficiency argument in there, but I mean... I don't want to win that case. I mean, I'm happy to win that case in sufficiency. I don't want to win that case in sufficiency. I want to win it on constitutionality. Right. Do you do you put an introduction somewhere in your brief? Yes, I think it's very important to do that. Um, a couple of paragraphs under you know understanding that if you get down to the stress day, which is the you know the last day in a term that a court that a case can be decided, um, you know I you know I assume the best about the law clerks that are reading my briefs, but I also know that they're extremely busy. And if, if there's a place that the reader, whether that be the judge or the justice or the clerk can go to and okay, here's a quick read of what this case is about. I think it's very powerful. Mm-hmm. Do you, but, 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 yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. I, I was going to ask about block quotes, but I want to hear what you want to say. Um, the other thing is sometimes requests for oral argument can be a can be a powerful advocacy tool for your whole case. Mm. You can you, you know you can you 
Yeah, tell me how you develop that. Yeah. It's an opportunity to summarize your case in a persuasive manner, and it's like a free shot at like a little mini brief. How so, how long? That's another thing. Too. How long are your requests for oral argument? Two three pages. I I, I I believe in being succinct. Right. Well, and I guess when when you have one issue instead of twelve, then it's a little bit easier to. <laughs> it's, it's much easier. It's much easier. <laughs> like, let me tell you about these twelve uh, abusive discretion evidentiary rulings. Right, right. And then you're like falling asleep at your computer. The, okay. Yes. We, the, we have a couple more lightning round things. But okay. I, I want to talk to you about one other thing instead of those. Um, okay. Because we're kind of coming up against the time. Congratulations, you passed the lightning round, by the way. Good. So my answers were all correct. Oh, one, 100%. I can't tell Scott Key that he's wrong. And so <laughs> I have to go back and edit everyone else. Or it's gonna I, be I like, wish more people... <laughs> I wish more people thought that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just, just double. Congratulations, you've failed this entirely. I, I would I would love nothing more than to print that quote from you and do a t-shirt and like have people wearing, I wouldn't tell Scott Key that he's wrong. <laughs> yeah, that's going on the website <laughs> today. <laughs> yeah, I think, we, I think we now have a show title. <laughs> <laughs> the, all right, so the last thing I want to talk about was you do – you say you've been embedded in trial before, like for the, the Hemi Newman case. And right. in, in, in this case, you, I mean, for people who aren't familiar with constitutional challenges in Georgia, it's very difficult to challenge the constitutionality of the statute because you have to give notice way early on. And it is the, oh. it is the last thing a trial lawyer is thinking about when, <laughs> when handling a case. And so you cannot raise it. Um, you know, even even at the motion for new trial stage, you can't raise it. Um, you have to. Right. I mean, you have to. Is it's what is, is it within the ten days after indictment, or is it even pre-indictment? It's uh, well, you know, there are some there are some challenges to the composition of the grand jury that you have to even lodge before indictment. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, you you gotta you gotta shape that. You have to shape that already. You have to shape up. You need to start thinking about your appeal if, if you're a trial lawyer. You should think about your appeal the moment you open the file. Mm-hmm. T- I mean, tell me about like I mean I'm I'm interested in kind of because that's something that a lot of appellate lawyers I've, at least I've never had experience in it where you say okay right, you know start at the beginning and help make this the best appeal it can be when you can still affect a lot of the stuff. Well, I'll tell you the value of that because um, I do a little bit of trial work. And the value of that is that not only when you start doing those sorts of things, when you start raising, when you start filing motions or uh, filing demurs to indictments or um, challenging the composition of the jury or filing motions to suppress, um, you know, in Georgia, you, you have a right to, you have a right to an indictment perfect in form and substance. When you start filing things like that, you'll be surprised at how much better your trial goes. You'll be surprised how much better the plea offers get. Um, you'll be surprised how much the judge sort of looks and respects you because judges are often bored out of their mind um, as they're trying to adjudicate who gets the Tupperware in a divorce. So when you are filing like, and I'm, I'm not talking like frivolous form motions and stuff like that, but when you are seriously looking at the indictment, thinking about the indictment, and you're thinking about the legal issues in the case, or you're thinking about the, the constitutionality of the statute that you're, that's before you, 
when you start filing, when you have a, when you have a very sort of aggressive motions practice, you'll be surprised at how much better your trial gets. I mean, that, that's, I hadn't thought about it in those terms, but that's so true where, I mean, it's also kind of showing, Hey, we're serious about this case and we're going to be, fi- we're going to be fighting on everything. And, you know, oh, and your client, and your, and your client loves it. Like, like to come into court and you know you're arguing these motions. You'll find that you sort of you've taken you've taken charge of the case. Like you're not just playing defense anymore. You're playing offense. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, clients love it. Um, I think ju- I think judges enjoy. I think most judges enjoy the intellectual rigor that comes with you know adjudicating motions. And, and if they're real, if they're real motions, I mean. You some time and thought into it. I, I'm not saying that you should paper your opponent to death just for right. fun, um, but it it really it it, it it gives you a fighting chance for appeal. It it gives um, it gives the prosecutor pause that even if the prosecutor wins the case, um, that it might go away. And so I think it leverages your plea negotiations. Um, and I think I think also um, it. You you know prosecuting your guy in a trial becomes a more difficult prospect for the prosecutor, and and also they're going to tend to not try to pull things on you during the trial that they might otherwise because they know they're going to get away with stuff. Well, Scott, thank you so much for for joining me today to talk about these appellate issues. I, I mean, I had a really great time. Um, oh, I did too. I really this is a great podcast, and I really appreciate the level of thought you put into these questions. This is really fantastic. Well, great. How, how, if someone wants to find you, how can they find you? I'm on Twitter. Uh, Twitter handle is jscotthe. Um, I am on Facebook. Um, and let me see. I'm on let's see, Twitter, Facebook. I'm on Instagram. My email address is uh, it's um, skey at millerandkeylaw.com. So um, those are the places you can find me. And, and oh, and then, and then my blog, of course, www.georgiacriminalappellatelawblog.com, which is a mouthful. Or, or just kind of figure out when you're mooting or arguing, and just show up at the, <laughs> show up at the state bar at the other end of the hallway, and <laughs> yes, and I'll, and I'll be down, I'll be down there meditating, and I'll give you a mean look. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, thank you, Scott. Thank you, everyone listening. If if you enjoyed it, um, give it five stars. If you didn't enjoy it. Uh, then you should probably just delete it from your list because they're all like this. Um, <laughs> please, please subscribe. Uh, Georgia Pellet Review, available wherever podcasts are sold. Um, and we will see you next time. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks.